0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: As a disabled person who's, you know, with my disability, I grew up with Adults always having very low expectations. I mean, there were definitely some teachers that just, you know, I thought like, oh, you know, why go to college? People just can't imagine people with significant disabilities doing well sometimes. And I think that's very messed up.
0: (laughs) This is Death, Sex, and Money, the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Disability rights activist Alice Wong lives in San Francisco. When I spoke with her recently, it was pretty early in the morning for her.
1: Yeah, well, I'm trying to night owl slash early bird so this is great for me so I love it
0: does that mean you sleep during the day are you nocturnal yeah yeah
1: pretty much (laughs) I'm a weirdo it's I mean I am basically Dracula so
0: (laughs) wait so when did you when did you last sleep at what time
1: 3 p.m. yesterday
0: oh it's when you woke up (laughs) yes when do you think you'll go to bed again?
1: Right after this.
0: What do you like about being up in the middle of the night?
1: Oh, I love just the quietness. I love just, you know, the art distractions. Especially, you know, I've been working from home for over 15 years. But, um, you know, I just love the solitude.
0: Alice recently edited a new book called Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century. It's an essay collection with contributions from people with a wide range of disabilities who write with real candor and often humor. The whole thing's got a real death, sex, and money vibe. Alice has a form of muscular dystrophy. She uses a wheelchair to get around and wears a BiPAP machine to help her breathe, which you'll hear throughout our conversation. And like many people, Alice has been sheltering in place since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. But in some ways, being home a lot has been familiar for her.
1: Much of my involvement with friends and relationships really does take place online already. So that part was a, a huge adjustment in my life. Um, I would say the biggest change has been sort kind of the low-key and not-so-low-key anxiety about catching the virus.
0: Alice isn't the only high-risk person in her household. She lives with her parents, who are both in their 70s. Alice is 46 now. Her parents have been her primary caregivers for most of her life. That's
1: something I always appreciated is that you know, my parents sacrificed a lot. You know, it's very clear that whatever I it in terms of time and support, you know, they were always there. And, you know, I'm sure I know that I was a financial hardship on them. For example, I realized as a young person that there was no insurance that would cover me
2: mm-hmm.
1: except the one company because of my pre-existing condition. And, uh, you know, my dad told me that. I mean, he was just very honest about that. And it wasn't in a way to make me feel bad or to, like, shame me. But I think there's a real reality check. Like, this is the world we're in.
0: It sounds like your dad described the world as it is to you. He didn't sugarcoat it. He's like, to ensure you as part of our family costs extra money, and that's the reality of the society we're living in. Um,
1: yep. And it's funny because when I turned 18, he said, Okay, you're 18 now. That means we're going to go to the county office. And you should apply for Medicaid. And I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, like, what is this happening? And my dad said, you know, you're not an adult, you are entitled to this. And, uh, you know, just think about the years of the huge costs to our family. You know, I was a young you know, do it all to you a know, teenager. Then I was like meditated. It's like, isn't that you know, for poor people? And, you know, I was like, yes it is. then I realized, you know, what it really means and that how vital these programs are because they really keep our community connected, you know, they really, you know, at least, help supports those who have the least, and that allows to be to live at home and you know live with personal assistance instead of an institution. But uh, like many other these tested programs, to be on Medicaid solely because of my personal needs. Uh, I'm not allowed to have over $2,000 in my bank account, and uh, there's actually a cap on how much I should earn per month. So, all of these things have kept me from having, you know, 401ks, you know, the usual things that, you know, people tell adults. They didn't have for like as a death stage for the future. I don't have any of those things.
0: What's the monthly cap on what you're able to earn?
1: In uh, California, I am on one that's a uh, the Working Disabled Program that allows me to earn up to two and a half times the poverty rates. So, two and a half times. The poverty rate, I believe, is if bit bid forty thousand. I think. The last time I looked, I think it's forty-ish thousand. Up.
0: Mm-hmm. How How do you feel about that earning limit? Does it feel like a relief that there's only so much you can try to earn, or does it feel like a cap on your ambition?
1: It is absolutely a cap on my ambition. I think of it as one of the clearest examples of systemic ableism. You know, the fact that there's a limit purely because the way our society is organized, that if you need assistance to live every day, you know, let's say, get out of bed, have people in People that work for you at your home to to help you do the everyday activities of life for those reasons alone to, to survive. That you're expected to have a trade off to live, you know, at poverty or near poverty. You know, that people don't realize is that to be poor or close to poverty, it takes a lot of work. I mean, it's just, it's basically a part-time job in terms of making sure you document everything because you're constantly, as a disabled person, asked to prove your your disability all the time. Just, you know, you have to always kind of reconfirm, yes, like, I do need these services, and yes, you have to repeat, like, all the different things that you cannot do, just to jump through the hoops to make sure that you are eligible.
0: Yeah, and it's this mix of you having to to show the government that you are both deserving of help and also dependent enough, like, need help enough so it's this combination of showing worthiness and also um, vulnerability.
1: Yeah, and these, these are often in conflicts. Yeah. So there's always, like, for me, like, hyper-vigilance about my big balance, about my assets, because no matter what happens in terms of no about an extra income, it's worth not being on change. Because basically, dedicated
0: is a lifeline for me. Alice grew up near Indianapolis, the oldest of three sisters. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Hong Kong a few years before she was born. She was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy as a toddler.
1: My disability world was completely separate from the Chinese American community. I was part of, uh, so we became involved in the local post-journal organization, so, so we to, you know, various events, uh, maybe once or twice a year, and, you know, that was a very, you know, a white world, and, up. Uh, I almost never saw anybody like myself, there. Then we also had a very small Chinese-American community that was uh, it was a uh, centered around a church and uh, yeah that was just that was sort by by safe place, you know, people that you know talked like us and, and like, uh, my sisters sisters and I that uh, we did have friends that to grow up with that were trying to separate it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did your personal care work when you were a kid growing up in your house? Did, was it family members who helped take care of you?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's basically it. Uh, you know, it started with mostly my parents doing all the care, especially us. I got older and needed more help, you know, that they were always there. And, you know, that as my sisters got a little older, you know, they were involved as well. Like, you know, it's really sort of made, uh, was this glue, the fact that every member of my family helped me with my personal care. In a lot of ways, I was kind of a hub where we were all connected.
0: Did you enjoy high school?
1: Oh gosh. Well, do you want the truth? Yes. Do you want the truth? Okay, hang on. I am so glad you asked me this question. Just now, I just Publicly, call out my high school, I just was so eager to leave that high school. Mm. Like, I was one of those kids who had senioritis, like, way before I was a senior. <laughs> like, like, I knew life was going to be so much better once I got to college you know, I gotta tell you you know I got in touch with my my rage as a, uh-huh at, a, at an early age I, it serves me well I want to say that you can
0: thank your high school experience for tapping yeah. into your rage <laughs> I want to understand just just so so I, so I get what was, what was um, the feeling at the time? Did you have an experience of were people directly cruel to you and bullied you, or was it more the feeling of just being invisible and not seen?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's very ironic because it's, I was invisible and yet so painfully visible at the same
2: time.
1: Mm. You know, I was one of the few wheelchair users at that school you know so my locker was a desk in the nurse's office because all the lockers were inaccessible and they just didn't even you know think about oh like maybe we should have segregated her this way uh, another thing by bus it had to drop me off to my high school about 30 or 40 minutes before school started because that was a bus that took other disabled students to another school.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I would get to school, and it would be pitch dark. But I would just, like, sit alone, and just wait for the students to arrive. But like, that was my high school experience. I will say that I had a teacher that refused to uh, she just advance me to the next level of a drama class that I was thinking. So, you mm-hmm. know, I had a, which crushed my dreams. So if you have time for this story, I'll tell you.
0: Yeah, I want to hear it. I love the high school is, is stories. It, okay,
1: um, I did not realize we were going to go in this direction, but I am here for this. <laughs> You're just giving me a gift. Uh, the salty gift. Okay. So as a sophomore, what are the things that I loved as a elective was drama, so I took uh, drama one taught by this tutor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: At the end of the year, I had a B, and I signed up for drama two for the next year. And she called me after class. and said, "I uh, just need to speak to your guidance counselor." I'm like, oh, okay. So, General McDonald's counselor, and she said the teacher was not going to advance me to drama too because she had to search whether I could fulfill the requirements. And let me tell you mm. the passing requirements. There was a section on Pantomime! Pantomime! <laughs> and because I'm a wheelchair user, she just presumed I can't do pantomime from a freaky chair. Wow. And I was like, Are you sure? She said, Yes. So I went back to the teacher and I said, I was I asked her to, like, you know, reconsider, she just shook her head and said, I'm sorry, I don't think so. You know, I was just, it was one of the few things that I enjoyed. And she said, I couldn't continue this because of my disability. And she had no imagination or even willingness to be flexible, and for an adult, you know, especially an educator, who supposedly, you know, supposed to, you know, bring up young people and get the best out of them. She, she got the best rage out of me.
0: I'm, I'm curious. So you, you felt rage. Did you? Did you, as a teenager, did you tell people what had happened, that that had been withheld from you?
1: You know, I told my friends, and, you know, they all felt horrible. But, you know, we didn't, like, protest. We didn't, like, create a frontus And, you know, the 46-year-old me would have done some serious stuff. But, uh, you know, at that time, I think... I was already so self-conscious and I, frankly, because of these, the counselor and the teacher, I didn't think anybody else in the administration honestly would have my back. Mm. I also didn't really share this that much with my parents because and I regret that like now. Mm. But, um, you know, a lot of times, you know, um, I think they were very kind of They kind of, advocated for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay too. Just, you know, in a lot of ways, I place the responsibility of advocating for myself. And that's, you know, how I learned to be self reliant and just
0: how to make a ruckus. Much-
1: Later on, you know, get me down. <laughs> get me now.
0: Coming up, Alice finally gets to go off to college. But the reality of attending was hard.
1: It was a real, you know, letdown for me. I, mean, I, I had dreams, I had ambitions, I had friends there. But, you know, again, you know, it's about the. Uh, the because, you know, the real dream was to leave, <laughs> to leave the air, to be honest.
0: A couple of weeks ago, I talked with Joanne Allen, who hosts the podcast Been There, Done That. She told me about what her own experience of getting older has been like, especially in the last year. And we told you that Joanne is going to be hosting a special project for Death, Sex, and Money about aging. And judging from how many of you we've already heard from, this is something you are ready to talk about, too.
1: I'm grateful for my wrinkles. I'm grateful for my sagging chin. I am grateful for my gray hair. And I'm even grateful for my aches and pains.
2: I have noticed a lot of changes in my sexuality uh, just in the
1: last few years.
0: Unlike Joanne, I don't like getting older, but I'm trying to deal with it.
1: Life has changed. I'm excited. It's a little nerve-wracking. and I find getting older to be, well, it's
0: inevitable, and I'm trying to do the best damn job I can of it. Our inbox is full of your stories about all the things that are good about getting older and a lot of the things that are hard, too. So if you're over 60, we want to hear from you, too. Tell us, what's your life like right now? And how are you feeling your age differently this year than last year? You can record a voice memo or send us an email to wnyc.org. You can also leave us a message at the phone number 917-740-6549. If you missed that episode where I talked with Joanne about her own experience of getting older, check it out. You can find it at deathsexmoney.org slash aging. And if you're not over 60, you can still help us spread the word about this project and send that episode to someone in your life who is. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Alice Wong started college in 1992, two years after the Americans with Disabilities Act became law. She enrolled at Earlham College, her dream school, a Quaker liberal arts college about an hour and a half away from home, where Alice says only one dorm was accessible to her at the time.
1: I was the first wheelchair user ever they had to renovate a bathroom just so I could use that bathroom. So this was the one bathroom a my dorm on campus that I could use.
0: This was the only bathroom on campus you could use? Yes. Wow.
1: You know, I was determined to attend this private school because, you know, I was driven by the academics. So There was a lot of stress.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the same time, you know, it was thrilling to be on my own.
0: When you went to... Earlham, when you first when you first left left home and lived in that dorm, was that the first time you had personal care assistants who weren't related to you?
1: Yes. Yes it was.
0: So you're an 18-year-old woman and just what was did anyone help you figure out how to communicate with them about how you wanted to be touched, treated, cared for? How did you learn uh, about that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was a real voting curve. And I think being able to direct my care with my family members, you know, was definitely helpful. I think, you know, when you rely on others for most activities of daily living? Um, speaking for myself, but I think um, other people in my situation would also... They might agree with me that you learn how to listen very well. You learn how to pick up nonverbal cues. You also learn how to really communicate in a, in a way that's effective. So, you know, you really learn how to, like, sense the situation and also adjust to it. So, like, You know, there were different people that came. Sometimes, you know, I would have somebody I'd never met before, and they have to help me use the bathroom. So, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, I had to be, you know, comfortable with my body, comfortable with somebody, um, you know, touching my body, who I just met for the first time. But, you know, I've always tried to stress that, I am the experts mm-hmm. Take a, you know, I'm there to tell you that this is the way I prefer to be lifted or, you know, X, Y, Z, because in your bossy pants, <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know, it's not a problem for me to say, uh, can you do it this way, uh, but you just have to be super organized in your brain. You know, it also be like really clear.
0: Wait, when you say organized in your brain, do you mean what what does that mean? Like what are the things that you're having to make sure are sorted?
1: Oh. Yeah, so it's always anticipating what's next. anticipating what you do wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody what a somebody drops me or if somebody doesn't want to do something the way I ask them to, you know, all the different kind of variables, but also to be mindful again, like how much time do I have left?
2: Uh-huh.
1: You know, if I get to get all the stuff that I need help with another time before they leave? Because they won't be back for another five or six hours. So, like, there's a constant internal evaluation of, you know, getting my stuff together. You know, after a few months, you know, it was it a become more difficult to get around campus when it was snowy and icy. And I got sick. And uh, I actually ended up having respiratory failure
2: mm-hmm.
1: and almost died, not even halfway into my first semester. Mm-hmm. So uh, once that happened, I actually had to take a year off school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I went back home to go to the sad. When all my friends were, you know, living the campus life, you know, I had to be the grown-up and decide, okay, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to commute to Indianapolis and downtown where there was a uh, Indiana University at Indianapolis campus. So,
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is a, the local computer campus that's a lot of, you know, non-traditional and just, you know, working. People already have, who are there for maybe a second degree or a bit life, you know, career change. This was as far different. As you get from Earl of College. Yeah. And, you know, it was incredibly, you know, difficult at the beginning. I mean, I did. I'm so thankful for my parents because they drove me to class. I mean, hmm. you know, I didn't have an accessible car. You know, they, were there for me. And it actually ended up I mean, a fantastic experience at Indiana
0: university
1: that really surprised me.
0: It strikes me, Alice, it's interesting that it was the the campus that served non-traditional students um, that was the one that could imagine possibilities for you that people in high, yeah. at, at your high school or at the private fancy liberal arts school could yeah. not
1: and I feel like that was such a, a humbling thing because with all of my kind of assumptions and you know judgments you know I had wonderful opportunities to learn and grow you know it really was a better situation Even though I didn't have all of the bells and whistles that one would want Mm -hmm. as a young person for all the, you know, I didn't go to parties. I I didn't do anything wild, but that's why I am the party animal that I am now. (laughs)
0: Alice finally left Indiana for San Francisco in 1997 to get her master's in medical sociology at the University of California, San Francisco. And being there was a lot of what she'd hoped for.
1: It immediately felt like hope because suddenly you saw like so many uh-huh. there was such a. It was such a relief. It was... But I was just so, like, thrilled. And, of course, the food, like, the culture, the weather, the diversity, just all of the things that are right at your footstep, your doorstep. I think that was so exciting. That was really the lifestyle you know I fish for myself
0: what did you do on the weekends when in that time of your oh, life when you were first getting to know the city
1: yeah I was just so lucky just exploring all the different neighborhoods like going to parks going to like Golden Gate Park I was actually walking distance from my campus to Golden Gate Park which mm. is amazing and you know, I love to taking public transit. So, like, public transit was accessible. That was thrilling. You know, being able to go to Berkeley and Oakland all by myself, uh-huh. like, that I, that would have never happened. Um,
0: Had you, you know, ever I, done that before? Like, to, to be able to travel around I the city never, by yourself? never.
1: Never, ever. So that was extremely, extremely thrilling. And all the little things was just an adventure.
0: When you moved to San Francisco, did your parents also move?
1: Well, funnily enough, at that time, it was incredibly difficult finding and retaining workers with really there was no ladder of ways to advance, and there were very few benefits.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So at that time, it was, you know, it was just so competitive for so many jobs that are just far better paid
2: mm-hmm.
1: that the plan was that I was going to, you know, stretch out on my own, but my Bob. She was there to help me through the adjustment period. You know, once I found a set of people, you know, she ended up staying with me. And what was really funny is my mom ended up having her own kind of renaissance because she went back to school
2: mm.
1: when I was in school. She went to service up. Uh, She first took classes through community college, Mm -hmm. and then she went to San Francisco State University. So my mom ended up getting a master's of social work.
0: I love that, that she moved out to help you and and what could from the outside you know just sort of like when you hear that part of the story you think like oh maybe you felt hemmed Mm -hmm. in by having your mom Mm -hmm. there and maybe your mom felt some some sense of obligation but that both of you were able to find a real sense of freedom Mm -hmm. and expansion in this new life together is so cool.
1: It was her time you know after raising three kids and being a mom just it was her time, and I think that's that was really excited to see.
0: Alice's dad eventually moved to San Francisco to join them as well. And these days, while Alice's parents still help with her care, she's also thinking about their care as they get older.
1: During this pandemic, you know, and even before that, I was planning ahead and going to you know, hire a new set of workers because I did have some home care workers, you know, throughout the years that would provide supplemental supplemental assistance because, you know, it shouldn't be all of my parents. But uh, with this pandemic and not feeling safe, yeah, it's definitely not, it's not the time right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I have this, you know, I have this luxury of living with my parents who are my computer care, care workers. You know, we, uh, ironically, right around the time the pandemic kind of really started to de-emerge that up. Uh, we all did our advanced directives. I think, Hmm. you know, was very just strange timing, but also it's a lot of adulting that, you know, I'm glad I did because you just kind of never know. I just need to plan ahead.
0: Wait, so when you just did your advanced directive?
1: I did it around March. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, it was just very kind of a funny kind of coincidence or to verges of um, events. So, yeah.
0: you know. So you're in your mid forties. What prompted you to do your advanced directive in March?
1: Well, you know, my parents were uh, you know, estate planning because they're both in their seventies. And you know, we really want to make sure that, you know, their wishes are, you know, fully in a document and you know, they do everything in order so that my sisters and I later on, you know, down the line, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to make some really difficult decisions. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've had these conversations that have been meaning to do it for years, but, you know, it's so difficult when you have parents who are a bit stubborn. And both of my parents are a bit kind of creaked out by it, but uh, you know, but they kept you know, they you know, the, us as kids adult kids, uh, we tried to like encourage them that this is, you know this is good, you know, we try to, we should get through this.
0: Have you noticed your relationship with them change as you're noticing them aging? That after after a lifetime of them looking out for you? Are you noticing some of their physical limitations in a way that is changing the way you all relate to each other?
1: Yeah, I would say that even though in my early life, you know, I did rely on them for a lot, you know, just even at an early age, we were all very interdependent as the oldest child. You know, I did do... I did help a lot, you know, in, my, in different ways. Like, I do, I contributed to the family. I was more than just somebody who required care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, I, and I think they... They also saw me that way as well. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, as younger, I was really good with, like, reading directions and just, like, getting on the road. Like, I would just, you know, don't forget to exit off this highway. You know, that was me.
0: Uh-huh. Lots of I mean, Yeah,
1: yeah <laughs> it lots of I would plan, like, to do all the research about, like, where I was going to stay what we you to eat, what you are to do. No one appointed me, but I was a self-appointed organizer-in-chief. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm proud of that. And, you know, I think uh, my parents also, should sort have of, they appreciate me as much as I appreciate them. <laughs>
0: That's Alice Wong. Her new book is called Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century. You can check out her podcast, also called Disability Visibility, wherever you listen. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm usually based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Affie Yellow Duke produced this episode. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thanks to Mia Gerritsen in St. George, Utah, who is a sustaining member of Death Sex and Money. Join Mia and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org donate. Alice told me she is proud of her new book and also likes to think what her teenage self would be able to do with it if she were back in high school.
1: I would have probably shoved that book in front of this tutor's face <laughs> and say, hey, look at these bad-ass Disabled people doing all kinds of things. They still play me into thinking that I can't do freaking (laughs) PS5. You know? I mean, I I have the receipts that I would have reeled on out of there.
0: I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.